Hi, I'm Jess Bonyard and I'm here to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Women's Rugby Coaching Magazine. Why not join the revolution with me and many others involved in driving forward rugby? Visit womensrugbycoaching.com to sign up for a monthly magazine packed full of inspirational stories, coaching tips and activities to help you support your coaching. That's womensrugbycoaching.com. Now, back to the podcast. Welcome to the Women's Rugby Coaching Podcast. We will be smashing through some of the issues and questions coaches have, as well as tackling talking points in women's rugby. Today on the pod, we're going to be chatting all things coaching internships, England women, Six Nations preparations, improving diversity in the game, and asking my all-important question, how many robots will there be coaching on a rugby pitch in 30 years' time? We've gone right to the very top of the elite England women's game with the two coaches on the pod here today. That's Amy Turner and Simon Middleton. So, first up with the introductions is Amy. Take it away, Amy, and introduce yourself. Um, I'm performance pathway officer um in the south so i look after the pathway all things are pathway um but generally in the south and i'm england under 20 head coach i'm also on an internship with the red Roses, which i'm loving nice introduce yourself mids okay so i'm simon middleton i am head coach of the england women's 15s team nice um so if we get sort of cracking straight with my first question which is I'm coming to you first Amy which is how is the coaching internship and the prep for the international fixtures going? Well uh, the internship is is brilliant um it's definitely opened my eyes into the world of high performance and all the moving parts which is needed to be aligned to make the environment work and make it as um smooth running as possible for the players um so for me a real eye-opener so i'm enjoying um learning about a high performance team in terms of a staff infrastructure um but also good to see what coaches you know how they plan and what they want to put into senior environments and get the players to concentrate on is is really good it's insightful definitely Nice. And what's been your your response to it, Mids? How's the coaching internship worked? Has, have you learnt a bit? Because obviously I think Amy will be learning loads. Has, have you learnt anything, Mids? Yeah, I mean, from our point of view, it's a, it's a massive win for us because uh, we, we obviously know Amy anyway uh, and she, she was an integral part of the RFU. Uh, we, and we had a massive amount of candidates, but Amy was a standout one for a number of reasons. Number one, because... Uh, you know, she's a, she's a fantastic coach, and in terms of her coaching pathway, she's 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 positioned perfectly for the, for this because this is about developing coaches uh, as opposed to working and giving opportunities to to coaches who are already developed and well established. This is very much about next generation. Uh, so so from that point of view, perfectly positioned. But the the bits that really drew us to Emily uh, to Emily to to Amy was she's ex Red Rose, uh, fifty nine caps. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, there you go. I keep crediting her with an extra 10, but uh, she keeps correcting me. So, 59 caps at hooker and scrum half. So, hugely influential positions, very specific skill sets, which uh, they're, they're the ones, if you're going to take players to a side and work consistently with them, they're the type of players you have to take. So, to have a player who can not only 
coached the big picture stuff, but can do real specialist stuff as well, is a massive plus for us. Uh, and obviously, it, one of the key bits for, for me was that whoever was going to come in had to have a, a full hands-on part in the programme and had to be respected within the, the programme from, from, from a player point of view, first and foremost. And Amy's got that to the max you know she's a fantastic player hugely respected as a, as a player you know, as a coach uh, at, at the time she started with Queensland with England uh, so you know we, we got we got it was a massive bonus for us getting Amy involved and uh, yeah it's, it's been great so far you know she's 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 she does anything we ask her to do uh, which obviously a lot of the time revolves around refereeing when we haven't got one, which the refereeing skills are fantastic now. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I don't think spreaders will be calling anytime, anytime soon about a, a job for me, for sure. Yeah, but that, that's, you know, it, it's great. We, uh, you know, we, we get so many facets to Amy as, as, a, as a person and a coach. So, uh, yeah, it's great. It's added massive value to us. Well, it sounds brilliant. And uh, Amy, if I can come to you first on the next one, if a coach is, is looking to intern or shadow another coach or team, what would you recommend for them to do or observe if you could sort of give like a top three of this? these are the things I'd recommend you do to get the most out of it? Um, I think it, for me, uh, and I can only talk from my lens, coming from a, a player transitioning into a coaching environment, I think you have an understanding of what's required it of you as a player to reach a high level. So in terms of the content of delivery, I was definitely looking at coaches' style and the language used and how they plan their session. I think that was one thing that I focused on. But in terms of the really important stuff, I think it's ask lots of questions, um, get insight from the, the coaches that you're working with because they, like I say, they'll see things from a different lens and have different points of view to perhaps what you had as a player or as a coach coming into that environment. So ask lots of questions and get insight around, um, you know, why they're doing things. Um, and I really take interest in how a coach facilitates an environment. So how are they getting the best out of the players? How are they creating an environment that the players are optimum so they're getting everything they need to do what they need to do on the park and that for me is the massive bit of learning that I've had um, over this period with the Red Roses it's an incredible amount of work that goes on behind the scenes to make sure that when those players go into camp whether it's a day two days five days everything that they can need is absolutely there for them they they've got every opportunity to have whatever they need to be at their best so the three things for me is observe the environment how the players are looked after um the content and how the how it's delivered so the language used um are they are they empowering asking questions or are they you know instructing and trying to get intensity just via just instruct and do um, and reflect on how that differs or is similar to what you're like as a coach. So reflection on yourself versus the coaches that you're looking at and the environment in which it's in and how that affects the players, I think are really prominent points from my lens of my learning. 
Miz, what would be your, your top three tips for a coach that's going to do some shadowing in a team? Well, I, th- I think they'd be uh, you know, very much the same as Amy's. I, I think one of the things that Amy's done really well, uh, and I know she, she, she talked about asking lots of questions there, and yes, without a shadow of a doubt, that's, that's usually important. You know, keep checking for understanding and whatnot. And, and I suppose this is relevant to, to the type of environment you go into. If you go into a really elite environment, uh, then what you generally find is information is generally very concise. Uh, there's, uh, and, and, and happens really quickly. And uh, communication streams, uh, as I say, uh, uh, I wouldn't say minimal, but if you're going to ask a question, make sure it, it's a it's a good question. It's a thought out question, uh, and that's what Amy does really well. So she's she, she'll always be prepared to put her opinion in, but she the timing of her in, interventions are really good. So she she gauges she gauges how the how, how the, the the mood is. Uh, whether you know whether there's quite an intense atmosphere because you know we're, we're either working under the clock or because we're discussing things where there's a there's maybe a, a clash of opinions and things like that, uh, and she'll make an intervention really timely and add value to the conversation. So I, I think that that's a, that's a key bit. I think when you go in uh, probably a, 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 a lower level where there's a lot more debating to be had, uh, you know your questions can be you know. You probably you know, can be a lot more open. Can can be can be a little bit more off the cuff as such. Generally, within the elite environment, and certainly under the situ- the, the, the situation we're working at the moment, which is your know, time is everything because the the COVID situations means you have X amount of time on the field. You have X amount of time to get ready. You have X amount of time in camp, and it's and it's all abbreviated. So you've got to everything's got to be bang bang bang, uh, and so. Picky moments carefully, uh, and and ask ask good questions. And, and Amy does that, you know, fantastically well. Uh, I suppose it's just like like she alluded to being getting a feel for the the atmosphere of the camp, and and, and really understanding the the tempo of the camp and the groove of the camp, and what the you know what the, how the team are operating in terms of the the management team. Uh, so I think that's you know that's a, that's a that's a really good one. And the other one is get 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 in there, get involved, get your hands in. Uh, you know, it's it's no place to be shy and standing back. Uh, it's about getting involved as much as you can, and uh, and really be, becoming part of the team and integrating yourself in, into the team as much as possible. Uh, and again, I mean, I think Amy Amy was really well positioned for that because. She pretty much knew most of the people within the, the camp, both players and uh, staff. But her personality as well and her uh, desire to learn and to progress is, is one where she, you know, she will put herself forward and make sure she, she really gets herself involved in stuff. But she does it really well in terms, terms of timing interventions and things like that. So. so, Amy, if I can come to you again, what do you think rugby can do to get more female coaches within all levels of the game? Or individuals, women, tend to be like, oh, no, I won't do that. Um, there's no one else down there. And I think it's it's about having a little bit of exposure, role models that are coaches, role models that are refs, role models that are players, 
and having that out there and normalized in literature that's you know whether it's grassroots level rugby ready stuff to level three coaching award it should just be normalized and it uh, there is a change there's an absolute change in um uh, in the feel of uh coaching environments wanting to accept and develop female coaches i i truly do believe that but it just takes time so it's if you are a young ambitious coach or an, uh, you know someone who has a family that their little girl or their little boy loves to play rugby and you want to get involved don't don't overlook the coaching element of it um and put yourself out there like Midge alluded to the fact that it's important to ask important questions but it's also important to have a go and put yourself in a position to have a go um and it's not comfortable so don't just sit back and watch and observe and think oh i'd like to do that just say i you know i, I want to help out i'll come down and i'll i'll you know i'll facilitate the cones whatever it may be just get out and do it and then keep doing it and it, then it just normalises it. There's not a quick fix answer, unfortunately, but I just think the more it's out there and the exposure is out there, the more it's not an unusual thing. I think to, to, just to pick up on that bit that uh, Amy said, it's. I, I think there's a there's a natural evolution that's going to come with with women's coaching and and the the, the level of, of of level and numbers of, of uh, female coaches. I think that the the male game and the and the amount of male coaches that uh, exist within the game are just that's a natural evolution from men playing the game and understanding the game and playing the game at elite level for so long. If you look at where the women's game is now compared to where it was ten years ago or maybe even five years ago, the elite side of it is has been elevated massively. So the amount of female players who are now being exposed to high-level coaching, high-level SNC, just high-level performance environments, and the understanding that, that that gives you in terms of what a coach is delivering. It's the thinking process behind it rather than just doing it. Uh, and I think the, the next generation of female coaches that come through will not only be significantly higher, but incredibly well-informed, will have lived almost... Uh, a decade of professional rugby in one way or another and that makes a massive difference in terms of the confidence those players have got to then become coaches and the quality of the delivery that they can give because ultimately particularly in terms of elite sport you will always get you always get judged on your, your delivery you may get a foot in the door as an opportunity lots and lots of coaches male female get op opportunities get the foot in the door but if you can't deliver at the highest level then that door will close quite quickly and what you'll find now is that the female play players who are now converting over into coaches in particular will be far more equipped to be able to not only get their foot in the door but get through to the other side and become real high quality established coaches and I think off the back of that you'll then get the players who probably weren't international players like happens in football like happens in rugby I'd, I'd give myself as an example. I wasn't an international player, but I, I I played with a lot of international players, both rugby league and rugby union, and I worked in an international, uh, well, in, in a professional environment. 
and I learned my lessons through observing and being part of playing with those those guys. So that's where you get the you'll get the elite level of of players who go into coaching, and then you'll get the next level who've played with them and experienced them and, and, and formed a real love for the game and an appreciation of the game. And then they'll follow through, and that's when you get the progression, you know. And it, it's a long game, like Amy said. It's incredibly accelerated in terms of the, the the women's game. I think in football, rugby, all the sports that have got a huge history of men playing them predominantly, you, you've only got to look now that the amount of female sport, uh, the level of it, the 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 involvement is is fantastic, and it's it's usually accelerated. But it's still a fairly, it's still a fairly long game. So, uh, as, I suppose the key bit is how the next generation coming through can then influence to speed up the process uh, and get the get the word out. But I, I think within the next ten years, you, you'll see a real influx of of high quality female coaches, and uh, you know it's it's uh, that's massively exciting for the game because, like Amy does with us, she adds a perspective. That as male coaches we can't, because we don't understand certain. You know, as much as I, I've worked with a female team now since two thousand and fourteen, but there's an hell of a lot I still don't understand. <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, Amy gives us great insights. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I mean, one of the, one of the things that I'd I'd love to see more, and I know we were chatting about this before I hit the record button, myself and Amy is that I honestly think the game could do with more internships like Amy's on, but across the men's premiership and across the women's premiership. Um, and if, if Mids, I'll come to you this, with this first. If you were in charge of that programme of putting together internships, coaching internships, the men's prem and the women's prem, what would it, what would it look like? How would you go about doing it? Well, I, I, I again, I think, you know, Everything takes time. If you look across the, the Premiership now, and even probably into the Championship, although obviously that's you know, that, that's a bit of a struggling environment at the moment, the 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 amount of coaches who are in there, the environments that they create, and they work very very diverse. But probably one thing that's that's consistent across them all is that they work under pressure all the time, and it's very difficult to see outside your <laughs> using the the inward bubble. Uh, different type of bubble, but it's very difficult to see outside that when you've got a real clear remit about what your day-to-day life as a coach should look like, what your environment should look like. So coaches become very precious of that environment and who comes in and who comes out of it. Uh, So it's, I think, particularly at that level, who gets invited in, it's a little bit, it comes a little bit down to, to, to who's, you know, who's probably out there as an elite player coming to the end of their career or who's the, who's the name uh, who's out there at the moment who could get an invite in? I, and that's the type of thing that the Premiership's probably ready for now in terms of some of the women coaches coming through. So you look at some of the players who, have, who are potentially coming to the end of their career. Obviously, Kate Daly-McLean just hung a boots up. I'm pretty sure any Premiership, she could approach any Premiership men's club and say, would you be interested in running an intern, internship? Could I be that person? Because of her profile, her 
international experience, the level she's played the game at, and her understanding of the game, I don't think that I don't think there's one that would turn her down. I honestly don't. Yeah, I may be maybe completely wrong, but I know if I was running a Premiership club, I'd see a player like that and I go, yeah, they can add value. It's an outside looking at an educated pair of eyes looking in. Uh, so, so I, I think you know we're not far off being ready. That we what we need is that next general generation of coaches that I was just talk, talking uh, about, and I think you know post World Cup. 2021, uh, you probably see three or four players surfacing who probably think it's it's about time to hang up their boots as a player, but are already investing in themselves in terms of coaches. And you, you could very very easily see some of them positioned uh, as interns or even more within, uh, or certainly starting as interns and then quickly becoming more within Premiership and definitely Championship clubs. Amy, what are your thoughts on on how you'd run an internship program? Um, I I agree with everything that Mitch has said around. I think clubs will recognise the potential in in um, ex elite players coming through that can add a fresh pair of eyes, uh, an insight, um, and also an opportunity to develop them as players because it looks good. Also, it you know helps that brand of women's rugby, especially if you're a Premiership club who have a a Premiership men's club who have a, a women's club alongside it. I think it's really important to show integration both both sides. Um, how would I run an internship? I I think it's being open-minded and 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 allowing um, and trusting those those individuals coming into uh, your environment and and getting them stuck in um, straight away, um, I think is is important. But from what, you know, I think World Rugby have done a, a, a great thing by recognising from the data that they collected in the 2017 World Cup around high, women in high performance roles and the lack of and off the back of that they have now introduced this um internship you know domestically for us um in england i think female coaches that are already in situ are the best in the world or share an awful lot of um you know, groundbreaking, look at, you know, Giselle Mather, for instance, who went, she was one of the first female coaches to be working in a male environment through the academy. Um, you've got an awful lot of coaches at the moment through this World Rugby um, community that are working in academies. You've got Tanya Rossiter, for example, working in Ireland with a, an age-grade um, men's club. You've got Rachel Taylor, who's now just taken the skills coach job with um, Wales women, but she was heavily integrated in academy systems in Wales with uh, in in the men's game. So there's there's trailblazers out there. Um, it's just giving the opportunity to other players, recognising where they're needed, and giving those opportunities. From what um, Mids has said around that next generation of players that are hanging up their boots and they've got an awful lot of value to, to give um, is that the club's just being open-minded for it. And I agree, I don't think any club would turn down some of the players that potentially will 
be hanging up their boots in the next couple of years as an intern. I just don't think they would. Yeah, no, I, I agree massively. I think the the opportunity, if, if there ever is an opportunity, I think the world in the way. I think it's kind of now or in the next couple of years for that to happen. Just sort of switching the tone slightly, I'm really keen to find out, obviously you've been doing the internship, Amy, and you've been working with MIDS. Like, how has that coaching relationship been balanced? So, um, Amy, if I can come to you first. So who are your coaching role models and who's informed your philosophy and how that worked? in the, a working relationship and balancing with mids? It's a good question. And I, I thought about it before coming on, like who's my coaching role model um, or role models. Uh, and it's, I don't know if I can honestly say that coach really inspires me about one particular person. There's a whole array. And, and don't get me wrong, I've already mentioned a few just from this conversation. But there are many that have influenced me and not as coaches, just as individuals that I've met through my playing career or just in life in general. There's an awful lot of um, people that have influenced me, but not necessarily my philosophy. Um, and I, I think my philosophy changes from every environment that I'm in. So I look after, I'm head coach of Hackney Men's um, London team, which is a, a level, level seven club. So it's, grassroots level and me as a head coach there my philosophy is completely different to how um I work in a, an elite environment with mid so my philosophy is completely different and again when I go over to under 20s and working with age grades my philosophy is different but what doesn't change is my behaviors and values I have a strong set of values that I think it's important to try and a show that these are the values that me as an individual are, I stick by but also making sure that you you have a set of standards or values within the environments that you're in albeit it might be completely different from one to the other um, but making sure that those are clear and the players know and so they have an expectation or understanding of what you are as a, a coach and within that they they're able to share and um be sort of transparent with how they feel so i in terms of philosophy i can't say i have one philosophy but i do have a set of values um which really sort of are strong to me and you know that it's it's from that i kind of build a philosophy into the environment in which i'm in around the players that i'm working with and i think it's important to have that flexibility not try and go into every environment with this is my philosophy i think it's really important that you recognize the need to adapt in certain scenarios or different different players in different environments yeah absolutely mids have you got coaching role models and a, and a set philosophy how do how does your coaching set of beliefs work well i think i think amy's 100 percent right you, you 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 know your philosophies the, the the nucleus of your philosophy probably stays the same but you you, you sort of grow and you adapt uh, and, I, and i've certainly found that in terms of the the women's game because it's it's because it's growing so quickly you have to adapt and change and because the dynamics of the women's game particularly is different from the men's but going back to i mean co who influenced my coaching and what what did i take uh well i'm not a 
I'm not the type of person who does an awful lot of research. I trust my instincts a lot and I coach along what my beliefs are. But I've got lots and lots of coaches who have... I mean, I've been fortunate. I've worked with a lot of really, really good coaches because I, I was assistant coach at Leeds, uh, Leeds Tykes, Leeds Carnegie, Yorkshire, <laughs> all the names I've had, for, uh, for the best part of 10 years. And under that time, I worked with... Phil Davis and Stu Lancaster and Daryl Powell and uh, Neil Back and Andy Keys. So, and a lot of assistant coaches as well, and backs and forwards coaches and kicking coaches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and I pick little snippets up from from each one of them. You know, some influenced my career where I looked and I went, that I think that's a great philosophy and that really resonates with me. And I've carried that with me all through my coaching career. And some bits I've looked at and gone, I will never do that. I will never do that as a coach. Uh, so you know, you and then you you knit your little bits together, and you know you you, and then at times you pull on different parts of your philosophy. Uh, I think one of the one of the, the the most striking conversations I ever had with a coach was a, a guy called Mike McClellan, who was he he was a and a lot of these are rugby league coaches, but I was actually working in rugby union at Leeds, and we were based at. Uh, Kirkstall, who was training ground at Leeds Rhinos, and he was head coach of the Leeds Rhinos. And, uh, and this is probably one of the things where I'll just plug the RFU training program here. Uh, the, the RFU level four, as part of it, I, I was like, I, I had to go interview a number of coaches, high profile coaches in various sports. And I went and I sat down and had an hour with him. And it was one of the most enlightening conversations I'd, I'd ever had with a coach. And, and uh, he talked about uh, his principles of, of uh, or his philosophy of coaching are, are probably more about principles of play and how the game's played. And he talks a lot about uh, pressure, how game comes down to, to pressure, how you absorb pressure and how you can exert pressure. And, uh, and it stuck with me more than probably any other coaching conversation I'd ever had. And a lot of my philosophy now is 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 based around that you know the, the, the principles of play revolve around how you control the pressure in, in a game but yeah I, like, I, you know i've had great conversations with uh with lots and lots of coaches generally over the beer uh, on, on the bus on the way back from games or after the game and that's when you do a lot of your coaching development comes from conversations not in a classroom and not by watching loads and loads of videos, stuff like that. You know, that works for a lot of people. But for me, it was just talking rugby with people and listening to what they had to say. And and just, you know, particularly, uh, you know, coaches in particular who, who probably didn't have massive playing careers behind them, but they had a huge passion for the game and they understood the game. You know, you sort of see that in like the, the likes of Mourinho in football where, you know, there's not, not a fantastic international playing career behind him, but one of the best coaches in the world. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've, you know, I've, I've drawn from lots of different coaches. Uh, you know. I, the ironic bit, and we had a conversation about this the other day with, uh, we were having a bit of a psychology session and we were just talking about stuff and who influences your career and things like that. And when, and it probably came about with Katie retiring, it was around that type of, type of uh, time. You ask most people though, who influence their careers more than anything, and they won't talk about any coach that they played under. They'll talk about their school teacher, or their parent, 
or the per- first person in the grassroots club who introduced him to rugby. So I got a guy called Dave Jervis, who I would have never played rugby if I hadn't been for him. I went down to Nottingham Rugby Union Club with no desire to play rugby at all, just to watch. I just wanted to watch my brother play and socialise. Uh, and I was only 16, 17 at the time, and he was I had a really bad experience playing in school. You know, not particularly just because I didn't like it and I wasn't built for it and, and whatnot. Uh, and he was like, oh, you know, come on, have a run with us. You might find it a little bit different and would game in a totally different environment. I was completely hooked. So he had probably the biggest influence on my career at all because if I hadn't have done that and he hadn't been like that, I would, probably wouldn't have even pursued a career in playing rugby and then there wouldn't have been a, a coaching career. Uh, and then, yeah, and then, you know, I went to Castleford uh, Rugby League, straight from rugby union to rugby league professional as such. Uh, worked under a coach called Daryl Vandervel, who was a real, he was an, a real big, tough, Aussie guy and, and his philosophies on the game were crystal clear and he was like this is how we do it and it was it was incredibly it was a very directive coaching environment but well, that's exactly what I needed because I'd, I'd never played rugby league uh, I didn't understand the principles of it I didn't understand the, the te- technical or tactical side and he was very concise with his information and if you didn't deliver you didn't play so you learned really quickly in the environment <laughs> Hi, it's me, Jess Bunyard again. Just want to say, don't forget to head on over to womensrugbycoaching.com to get our monthly magazine. Develop yourself, your players, and have fun. Let's push rugby forward together. So being that the grassroots is, is probably the most important place, really, is where we feel the most impact throughout our whole career, as Ms. just said, what advice would you give to a young coach who's just starting out on their coaching journey at a, at a grassroots club? Um, be high energy, be positive, and make sure what you're doing is fun, um, but meaningful at the same time. So everything that you do, do it in a way that it's going to positively empower the players that you're with, because um, they're youngsters and in in that sort of frame of mind where that's going to stay with them through the years. So empowering, fun you know, high energy and always, always asking questions and giving uh, positive assurances. In my opinion, you know, I can can remember playing sort of under sevens at my local rugby club and I can remember the coaches and I, the the forwards coach, he was, um, he was a dad of uh, the two props that were, that were twins and he was just hard as nails and told you how it was um, and I, I was a hooker when I played minis and I trans, sort of went into scrum off later down the line but um, I just found it like really I've almost felt scared of you know his criticism or his critique but when we you know we played the the games and stuff the other dad that worked with you know the back and the open play he was so positive and so reassuring as a individual that it made me love that part of the game and I definitely think that subconsciously has driven my passion and my natural eye when I watch a game around attack um so I I think always be open-minded always positive and high energy and try and draw the 
the learning out of them rather than telling them you know that that in the broadest sense not knowing the environment or you know the I just think that's that's where you'll get the most value given to those players yeah massively Mids what about yourself yeah I I think don't 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 take it too seriously at that point in terms of what we're trying to get out of the players. Energise, uh, make it fun, uh, and then learning will happen. And and, and the, the talented players will surface, but not at the expense of others who just want to play. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have to look any further than my, my, uh, my son's football coaches. They're absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's you know, I, I, he's been playing football. See, my daughter played rugby. My, my son played football. Uh, he's played football for probably six, seven years now. And I look at some of the the coaches who took him and the the team he had uh, when he was ten, eleven, twelve, and it was the most uninspiring and just like. It was just an uh, unenjoyable environment, you could imagine. And the kids would bicker with each other and the coach would get irate and end up berating the kids. And I used to start thinking, oh, my God, he must love playing football to stay in this environment. And now he's in an environment, he's played for like three years with the team and the coaches are absolutely brilliant. And they've got 15 or 16 kids who come down and everything's, you know, they're, they're, they're straight with them. They're honest with them because they're sixteen, they're fifteen and sixteen now. So you know they're young adults almost, and you know they're, they're dead straight with them. They expect a degree of discipline, uh, but it comes, it comes with the respect they have for them as coaches because everything they do, they are one hundred percent committed to the kids, and they their sessions are energized and fun, and they get good, good detail into their coaching, but not too much. It's detail they can handle. They don't. They don't try and make it a science, uh, and, and I just think they've got the balance really right. So it's very much relative to, to, to the age of, of of the group you're coaching, but the principles should remain the same. It's got to be energized. It's got to be fun. Keep it busy. Keep and one thing as well, because I've taken a couple of sessions, <laughs> and uh, it's like you keep keep them moving. Don't give them time to think, because time to think is time to talk. Time to talk is time to drift. And the next thing you know, they're talking about the girlfriends or they're talking about the boyfriends or they're talking about what they're going to do like when they're finished playing. So, uh, yeah, keep a ball in play would be my motto. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good motto. Um, just redirecting the conversation back to, to women's rugby for a second. Obviously, the profile of women's rugby has grown massively. Um, over the last decade, I think the fact that there are several podcasts alone dedicated to it, um, there's coaching internships happening, um, the growth of players across from grassroots right up to elite has grown massively. What do you think needs to happen for the sport to grow even further? Um, and Amy, if I'll come to you first again on that one. Um, I think exposure of role, role models, you'll see, you know, you see in on BT Sport, Channel 4 and uh, ITV, you see an awful lot now of female specialist commentators that are ex-rugby players. You've got Nolly Waterman, Maggie Alfonsi um, and various other guest commentators working 
for BT Sport. Um, so I think having that normality of having those out there um, commentating on games, whether it will be it, you know, male or female, and showing their expertise in the game, again, normalises the whole the whole scenario you know it's just it's so frustrating to have to say well we need to normalize it we need to get exposure out there we need media buy-in you know when it comes to selling a rugby shirt on on a website use players you know the whole eye care movement around trolling um of female rugby players and let's get the male compadres supporting those players and speaking out about it too. Um, and it just normalises, just, we are, a female rugby is, is growing. It's got a lot of interest and we want to make it more uh, feasible for the wider audiences to enjoy. And by doing that, you need exposures in the right area commercially. Um, you need, change to come from the community level you know mums and dads working as coaches and volunteering um and then looking at the wider aspects of the game female referees you know sarah cox has got an awful lot of exposure over the last year and she's had an opportunity now to show showcase her capabilities in a, a male uh professional environment um and she's she's doing great and that again helps because you know she's not the first because there's joy neville i think was the first but she is making that she's trailblazing the way making herself a role model whether it's intentional or not for young players that are like, or you know i'm not that great at rugby but i'd love to be a ref um and also ex-professional players female players that have stopped playing and they don't really want to coach but they want to be in the game be a ref and they're you know, there's a few of them out there at the moment, um, again, getting those experience, experiences at a lower level to come through. You've got Latoya Mason, um, you've got um, Holly, um, I've forgotten her surname, she's just got married, and <laughs> Hollywood, um, who's just come through, was a Harlequins player and now is on a, a wrestling fast track. So you've got an awful lot of... Um, things starting to happen and I think once you get down the line a year two years down the line I think it will like Mids was talking about that natural evolution I just think it will be but you know it's just sad that females within the sport get sort of looked at under a magnifying glass in any way shape or form um, and unfortunately are subject to negative comments through people that just are, you know, keyboard warriors wanting to throw an opinion to stir a pot. And that's, that's fine, but that that's what they want to do. But do it, you know, if, you don't, if you've got an opinion and it's not a positive one, keep it to yourself, in my, in my opinion, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, obviously, there was the, the I Am Enough campaign that sort of happened first around kit and, and women's kit and getting female players to model the kit and show it off like, like men's do. And the, and the eye care thing has, has obviously just recently happened. Do you think 
by seeing more women on screen, actually people will start to care more. There'll be less of this. Because I imagine if I had no involvement in women's rugby whatsoever and I saw it a post once a month from a sporting website, from like BBC Sport or Sky Sports, I probably might go and shrug my shoulders because I probably haven't seen it. I haven't had that much interaction. Do you think there needs to be more done by the the sports journalists of the world on social media to to talk about a little bit more would that would that reduce the need for the eye care stuff to happen i i think it's getting to a point where it's it's the you know the exposure and the media that all they're all wanting to progress the game and uh, from my experiences every media outlet i've worked with they're all passionate of it of seeing the game grow and it it comes down to yeah just the regularity of it um you know we're in a really good position where um the ap15s now is getting streamed every week they're getting commentating uh every week and you know nick keith and cat merchant i think are regularly doing that and they occasionally have a a guest guest players on there that are injured or not playing in a particular fixture and that is all great so it's I, I don't think the media are doing anything wrong I just think it's continually to continue growing that exposure continue again I say the word normalizing but continue to make it normal um, those people that have an opinion are always going to be there in one way or another you, and it's just about you know, blocking out the noise with people taking an interest positively, you know, putting it out there that they enjoyed it and, you know, calling out people that are just behaving below par. It's just, we don't need, in this in this day and age, in the last, you know, year, I, it's just ridiculous. There's bigger things to be worrying about than whether women's rugby, who, you know, who cares women's rugby's being delayed in the Six Nations? No, it, you know, you don't need to be putting that out there. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Mids, what, um, what do you think we need to do to grow the profile further? Um, just picking up on the back of the eye care stuff, what do you think we need to do to, to grow the profile of women's rugby a little bit more? Uh, well, I think, I, I mean, certainly in terms of uh, how, you know, how the game's growing now, the accelerated version of the, the of the game. It's, I mean, sort of COVID hit us when we were in full stride in terms of the women's game. Because there's a, there's a few fundamentals for me that are that are gonna that are gonna grow the game rapidly, uh, and most of it comes down to media exposure. And if you think about uh, where we got ourselves to, the 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 TV coverage that we've Sort of gained probably since 2017 World Cup when ITV put the final, moved the final onto onto prime time TV. That that was a bit of a revolution for the for the game. I thought, and you know, and uh, as, as painful as the result was, the game itself probably lended itself to an audience that probably hadn't seen a lot of women's rugby before. Uh, and I think the more experiences you can get like that, the greater you're going to grow the game. And I think off the back of that. 
the sort of broadcasters got on board a little bit, you know, so we got a lot of attention from Sky. You know, they were keen to pick, pick our, our games up. BBC have picked the games up recently. Uh, you know, ITV are covering games. So I think, you know, the, the mainstream broadcasters getting involved has got to be a huge way forward for us. I think the other thing is the live product. Whereas up until probably three years ago, I, I think our our attempts to sell international games and, and stage international games was pretty average. You look into France. We went into France in 2018, Six Nations, and we went to Grenoble, and there was 17,000 fans in the stadium, and it was absolutely rocking. And it was like, this is a proper international fixture. And then we were coming back and playing in front of 3,000 and 4,000. You know, in a stadium that probably holds 10,000 or 12,000, like, like a, you know, at, at the stoop, there'd be 3,000, 3,500 to turn up. We'd be making a big deal of it. And it's not, a, it wasn't a big deal. It probably was at the time. But when you looked at what was happening in France, it wasn't a big deal. And I think we, we learned a lot from that experience, from the from going to France and, and looking in there and seeing how they promoted games and how they sold games. And then we really learned some lessons. So off the back of that, we started going to, first of all, we're going to venues who wanted us there, could host us and could fill the ground. So, so like Doncaster, which was, which was, you know, at the time was a great initiative for us. Uh, they did a great job with us create a really good atmosphere for us to play in. And and I think the atmosphere then sells the game because if you get a good atmosphere portrayed on TV and they're panning around the crowds and everybody's got flags and there's lots of kids there. And, and the, one thing about the girls, they they know how to embrace the crowd at the end. They absolutely love going pitch side. So you still got this huge engagement with the, with the players pitch side at the end of the game. Uh, and the kids do it, you know, doing selfies and everything. And that in itself is, is a great way of growing the game. So then we move on to places like Bedford, where, you know, we're adding another two or 3,000 to the crowd. Then we go to Exeter and we've got 10,000 and 12,000. Then we go back to the stoop and all of a sudden there's another 10,000 plus in there. And we're really starting to grow the game to the point where, you know, we're now going right wherever we play, it needs to be 10,000 plus stadium because we're going to sell that amount of tickets. And that's fantastic. That was absolutely, to have that feeling that, that you're actually making an impact now. You're starting to grow the game, you, you know, because ultimately you've got to get the game viable, you know, and 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 you'll do that by attracting broadcasters and selling tickets, and uh, you know, so we're starting to grow, and then obviously you know, COVID hits, like you see everybody, and and it's just got us on our heels a little bit, but but I anticipate us picking up pretty close to where we left off once we start getting crowds back in, and we can really start getting, uh, you know, getting off the back of it, uh, and and I think with that. You know, c combined with the things that Amy, Amy said in, in terms of who then presents that, who fronts those, you, you will see far more international players, women women players, than fronting those programmes and leading on those programmes. And uh, I mean, some of the best are still playing. That's the key bit. You know, so you know, you've got you got Scars, you've got Mo, uh, Sarah Hunter. They are absolute. They are high quality presenters. When they go pit side, people listen when they talk because they know what they're talking about. Uh, so, you know, you, 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 again, it's that, you know, the next the next level of coaches, the next level of uh, personalities, TV personalities is there to be seen. And it's, and it's a growth because of their understanding of the game, because of the environment they've played most of their game in, now, you know, most of their careers in now. And I think you don't have to look much further than football. 
you know, you look at the football now, the punditry is uh, it's probably weighted in favour of, of female presenters. They're fantastic. Laura Woods is one of the best presenters I've ever listened. I listened to her on TalkSport uh, and I was like, wow, she is just a delivery. And then obviously she's, she's pretty much hosted every every football programme that's going off at the moment, she seems to be. Uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, I watch a lot of Aussie Rugby League and the, most of their programmes are hosted and presented by, by female commentators. And they're, they're fantastic, you know, because of their knowledge of the game and how they deliver. And they can just deliver with a bit more zest than the men can, to be honest. So you play to your strengths, you know, because the men can be pretty dour listening to men commentating all the time on football or presenting all the time. You know, it's... it's so, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a great sort of next wave of... Or, or, yeah, I'd say probably next wave of, of commentators ready to step up and, and uh, players ready to, to front the game. Uh, so I think there's a lot of positive, positive stuff. But ultimately, you know, we, we like I say, we learn, we learn some lessons about how to grow our game over here in terms of delivering it as a product. And, and, and that's great to see. Uh, I, you, as I say, you look at football and, and how that's being fronted by female uh, commentators now and I don't think I don't think women's would be really far behind that once it gets up and running again no I I agree I've been actually sat watching rugby with my my parents or more specifically my my dad and my mum's been doing other stuff and they've been talking over the commentators as they've been doing their piece to camera but they'll both stop and listen when Emily Scarrett talks because she sounds like she knows what she's talking about and it's a it's a fresh voice and a, and a different voice um but just coming, my, my final question, and I asked it at the end of all of my podcasts, and I've had some normal answers, which is like more female coaches, uh, more diversity hires, um, more game-related, I think it's a bit more fun and energetic, and I've had some like proper mad sci-fi questions. Um, my last one, which is like, some people have wanted VR headsets and like mad the <laughs> pictures and stuff. Um, so I'm really keen to hear your responses. Which is, if we travel forward in time, what does coaching look like in the next 30 years, and who is doing the coaching? Amy, blast me with your. With your <laughs> I'm excited. God, I, I, I don't know if you know. I'm comfortable with coaches being robots or. Or you know, hovering over the session to get a bird's eye view with a a rocket pack on. Actually, that could work. To be fair, but um, no. I, what do I see in thirty years? You know, the integration of male and female. It doesn't matter. It's just a a good amount of rugby coaches that either have had their experience in the women's game or have had their experience in the men's game, and it's just normal. To cross over and there is a real um, seamless fluidity between the male and female game um, that's where I think 30 years massively we'll, we'll see the changes um, from everything that we've discussed I think that it will result in that um, in terms of uh, the game is so, uh, so at such a high standard at the moment and can you know mid spoke about being concise and actually information is really minimal and it's you know it, it's short and sharp and you know the players are leading on an awful lot of of it and i just think that will continue to 
um, progress, especially at a high performance level. The co you know, from my experience of watching, it's about a coach, and you know, hopefully being that a little bit with the under 20s is about a coach recognizing um where the development is needed so from an under 20s perspective where the development's needed and steering them in that right direction and giving them the tools to be able to learn and do that themselves when you get to a high performance level and i think in years to come this will be more prevalent is you know having a, a group of key individuals that you think influence the environment key players steering them and where you think the game needs to go and allowing them as a group to to get there and you you allow them as a group to work out how that needs to look and you steer them with your insight and your your philosophy or you know your ideas of where tactically technically you know i think game intelligence at the moment um is probably not where it needs to be a lot of um you know a lot of environments rely on heavily on playing a game a certain way with shape and you know it being quite prescriptive which it's just the way the game is and that's that's how it is at the moment but i think in years to come i think that game intelligence will take a massive turn um and it will be very much a player-led environment and it is to a point now but with the guidance and steering um, I also think there's lots of different elements of the training that can be integrated a bit more and that's around, you know, a mental coach as well as your S&C, as well as your skill, as, as well as your head coach, your backs and forwards. You, you know, you, you need to have a, a broad network of supporting coaches to enable those players to be optimum, but to lead within their group like be self-sufficient but lean on certain areas to get to get the best out of themselves um and for me that's where i think in 30 years time you know in some environments there's they're very close to that and you know within red roses at the moment i think it's incredible the amount of work mid does with players to ensure that the players are having an opportunity to feed into how things are done um and that just when it comes to game day and pressures on, that is going to pay dividends to those individuals and the the whole group because they've had a say in how they want to play, um, and that to me is a really empowering uh, empowering tool. And as we move forward, that that will only grow. Yeah. So no pressure, mids. Amy is coming at it from a very sensible direction, texting <laughs> yeah. all manner of sci-fi and and wacky robots and. <laughs> from you well honestly jess you're not gonna get that from me i don't i don't i don't do that <laughs> I, i'm very much i'm even more towards the the side that amy's aired on there i i don't think too far ahead jess i'll be absolutely honest I, i'm not thinking much further than probably end of october 2021 <laughs> so <laughs> when we talk about things that May go on after that. They don't get a right lot of my attention at this moment in time. <laughs> uh, I, I think, but, but in, in terms of how the women's game and coaching and delivery within the women's game may go, 
I can. It'll probably sound a bit boring, but I, I think uh, Amy's hit the nail on the head. I, I think, and and it's probably not just women's coaching. It's because of society in general now. Uh, the sessions sessions have to be. Uh, they have to have a couple of things. They have to have give ownership to the players, and they have to be engaging. And anybody who thinks just pulling an England shirt on or a, a Man United shirt on if it's football or whatever and going out and just playing will be enough to engage is probably wrong because the nature of particularly young players these days is that they're very in the moment and they want to be engaged and they want to be excited and they want to stay switched on and their attention span is probably not that long. So I think the sessions will become shorter, very much more, uh, like Amy said, uh, engaged in terms of player-driven, uh, with the coaching more facilitating and being able to to steer uh, and maybe add bits of detail as opposed to really be directing everything that's going on on the field. And I think probably met, ways in which we work will be different as well. You know, there's one of the things that's come out of COVID is is you know, adapt, adaptability used to be something everybody strives for and talks about. We have to be adaptable. Well, adaptable, adaptable is now a way of life. If you're not adaptable, you're not going to get anywhere at this moment in time. So we, we literally changed that. We must have changed our schedule five times this week for next week and for the, the rest of, uh, you know, the rest of the year because there's so many unknowns. But we, we don't bat an eyelid at it now. We just, we get on Zoom and we change it. And we put it up, and I think the accessibility of players to coaches, be S and C, be medical, be psych, you don't have to wait till you're meeting somebody uh, in in a room now. So that the exposure and the amount of work you can actually do before you get into camp now is actually huge for us. So you know, I, I, personally, I I made a, a sort of bit of a resolution to myself. Uh, when lockdown started first time that you have to look at things and go right where's the opportunity as opposed to where's the drawback and and there's been massive amounts of opportunity uh, over the last sort of year uh, to evolve how we work and our practices and 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 I'm sure most businesses have worked like that the the way businesses will change forever as a result of COVID uh, and probably save an awful lot of money for a lot of companies, you know, because a, a meeting for us, a staff meeting for us would be 20 people at Twickenham previously. Now it's 20 people on a Zoom call. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a dynamic, there's a logistic that comes with that that saves an awful lot of money, things like that. And if you can do that, then you can channel it somewhere else. Uh, so I think, you know, working practices will change considerably. I think players and teams will be far more prepped before they get into camp and things like that. And then the the, the camp bit is probably the, the polishing bit as opposed to all the installation and everything that goes with it. But I think there will there'll always be there'll always be a place for a coach on the field and coaches on the field because the human touch makes a massive difference for for a lot of players. Not all of them, but a lot of players will, will excel because of the the coach that they're working with or they'll regress because of the coach they're working with it's it's like teaching you know i i you know as, as a father who's had two kids who are recently out of education or one recently out of education one's still in it he's good in the he's good in the subjects he engages with his teacher uh it's just a natural reaction so i think there'll always be room for a human touch but uh 
not sure about the robots. I'd have to plan that one out a bit more. <laughs> but I think that's that's a really positive place to end, which is just that there'll always be a human touch to coaching. And coaching is um, first and foremost about the the relationships and the interactions that we have. So uh, thank you very both very much for joining me. Thank you, Amy. You're absolutely welcome. It's been a pleasure, Jess. Thank you. And thanks, Mids. Yeah, cheers, Jess. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.